Turn to Luke 21, chapter 21, starting in verse 5. I just want to give kind of a disclaimer. I found out Tuesday that I was preaching this week, um, and uh, I'm preaching on the Olivet Discourse, which, uh, to be honest, if you asked me two weeks ago, which is the most intimidating passage of all of Scripture to preach on, this may have been how I answered. Um, I haven't found two commentaries that agree on the interpretation of this passage. So, with that said, I hope that we approach this passage with all reverence, patience, grace, and humility. Um, but I want to jump right into it. And, and to understand this passage, we really need to grasp the context of what's going on. So this is the Passion Week. We're getting close to, to the crucifixion. This is Wednesday Meaning all day Tuesday and Wednesday, Jesus has been teaching and arguing with the religious leaders. And Jesus has been on attack. He has attacked the temple. He has attacked the religious system. He's attacked the religious leaders. He's attacked the hypocritical offerings by the rich. Jesus has been on attack. And and I want you to try to get an understanding of where the disciples are, are at in this moment. They're probably confused. They thought at this point that Jesus was the Messiah. But their understanding of the Messiah would be one that would overthrow the Romans. Their eschatology would, he would come, overthrow the Romans, attack the Romans, and establish Jerusalem and Israel as a kingdom. But instead, God has only shown aggression toward the Jews, the temple, the religious system, and the religious leaders. I'm sure at this point they're confused, and I think that's why they say in verse 5, or they were talking in verse 5, and while some of them were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble noble stones and offerings. And Mark, actually, in chapter 13, 1, it says it this way, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, looking at the temple. Isn't God's favor here? Look how beautiful this is. This is the Olivet Discourse, which is just a term that the theologians use for this portion of Scripture. It's Jesus' teaching. They call it the Olivet Discourse because it was on the Mount of Olives, meaning, if you know the geography of Israel, it's the best view of the temple. It's a hill across the, across the way from the hill where the temple is. And so there is this awesome view of this beautiful temple. And this is what the his, uh, historian said about the temple. It was, it was built with brilliant white stones, polished like marble. It contained numerous rooms, porches, palaces, and patios. The highest of its many levels towered hundreds of feet above the Kindran Valley. Its spectacular location on Mount Moriah gave it an imposing dominance over the ancient city of Jerusalem. From a distance, it looked like a mountain of gold because its nine massive gates and because much of its exterior was plated with pure gold and silver and jewels. The temple was considered one of the great wonders of the the Roman world. I mean, if God was truly mad at this whole system and this temple and the religious leaders, why would he allow such a beautiful building in his name? I think that's where they're coming from. So Jesus answers them in verse 6. As for these that you see, the day will come when there will be 
not one be left or here stone upon another that will be uh, that will not be thrown down as they're looking at this massive building with these massive huge stones Jesus says not one stone will be on another there'll be a day where this is just gone that was an unbelievable prediction I mean this building took 40 years to build and Jesus says a day is coming when when it'll be gone be gone. And we know from history that's exactly what happened. Brent has been teaching. Um, we know in AD 70, about 40 years after this prediction, right? Rome came into Jerusalem. It surrounded Jerusalem and then attacked Jerusalem and slaughtered thousands of Jews. Rome crucified over 500 Jews in one day, all facing the temple as they did it. They butchered women and children. It was a horrific event, if you read the history of it. Then they set the temple on fire with such amazing heat because of the the buildup of um, fuel that they put around the temple that it burned so hot that the stones started to crumble and all the gold melted and it sank between all the stones of the temple as it collapsed. The gold melted and melted down to the bottom and so when the fire was out, the Romans were, were interested in getting the gold, so they took stone off of stone to get to the gold that was underneath. An amazing, unbelievable prediction, and, and it's exactly what happened, but it would have been extremely hard in that moment for the disciples to believe this prediction. So the disciples, in disbelief, asked two questions in verse 7. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Right, there's two questions there. When will this happen? And what will be the signs to let us know it's about to happen? Right, these two questions start the Olivet Discourse as teaching the sermon by Jesus, which is a very debated passage. Like I said, I couldn't find two commentaries that agreed on the finer points of this passage out of all the commentaries I've read this week. But there's three main ways that I have found that the Olive, or the Olivet Discourse has been interpreted. And I think this will help us as we go through, right? They're asking, when will this happen, and what will be the signs? And, and Jesus gives this long sermon. And the three ways of interpreting it is, first, all or most of the Olivet Discourse is concerned only with the destruction of Jerusalem in, in, in seven, or AD 70. That horrific event when Rome comes in and destroys the temple and destroys all the Jews. And everything in the sermon is about that. The second way that this is interpreted is probably the way our church and people that come to our church are more familiar with. Is that all of this sermon is about the judgment of the world just before the second coming of Jesus. This whole, this whole sermon Jesus was preaching about was mainly and only concerned with when he comes back and the judgment of the world when that happens. But there's a third way of interpreting this. And the third way is that this sermon that Jesus preached is a, is a prophecy that combines the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the judgment of the world just before the second coming of Jesus. And it does, and it does it in such a way that it's really difficult to figure out what Jesus is talking about through the sermon. I lean toward this third interpretation. I'm very thankful Brent is shaking his head because I haven't talked to him about this. I believe Jesus is talking about both. 
And I also believe what happened in AD 70, um, or I believe Jesus is talking about both what happened in AD 70 and what will happen just before the second coming of Christ. And I believe uh, that AD 70 is a type of what will happen in end times. Meaning the destruction of the temple and the persecution of the early church is a type of what will happen in the end. And how typology usually works. This is how the Bible interprets things over and over and over again. It's one of the reasons I think it's a type. And usually how typology works is that the type is much lesser than the antitype, what it's pointing to, which is much greater. So with that said... Um, I think before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, this passage was intended to warn and encourage believers of the early church as they prepared for to respond or prepared and respond to the horrific events that Jesus was preaching about. But after the destruction of the temple, which is where we're at, I believe this passage is intended to warn and encourage all believers. That the end will come at any time, and therefore we need to be ready. I also believe, like I said, the destruction of the temple um, and the persecution of the early church is a type of what we'll see as the end comes. And if that confuses you, that's okay. <laughs> to be honest, I've never been so confused by a passage of Scripture in my life. But here's the good news. And I think most people, when they approach this passage, they're completely just missing the point. Jesus didn't preach so we knew when he was coming back. He told us we won't know. Jesus preached this because he wanted to give us six commands or six um, exhortations, which all six are very easy to understand. Six things we need to do as Christians. So I want to jump into these six things. I think five out of the six applies to us, as we will see. So let's jump into these six easy commands that we can understand as we dig into this deep passage this morning. The first command is this. Do not follow false teachers and false teachings. That's easy enough. Do not follow false teachers and false teachings. Verse 8, look at what it says. And he said... See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. False teaching has always been around, and will always be around until Jesus comes back. It started with a snake in the garden. It's around during the the New Testament between when Jesus said this and and the uh, final book of um, that was written in the New Testament, and we have thought through this. Every single book in the New Testament speaks to false teaching at some point of the book. False teaching is a big deal. I was uh, teaching the Sunday school class last week, and uh, we were in 2 Peter 2, 10 through 22, and I was amazed by the words of this. Just listen to what it says about false teachers in 2 Peter. Reading from, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because I just think it's a little bit more blunt. Here's what it says. These people, false teachers, these people are proud and arrogant, daring even to scoff at supernatural beings without so much as trembling. These false teachers are like unthinkable animals, creatures of instincts, born to be caught and destroyed. 
They scoff at things they do not understand, and like animals, they will be destroyed. Their destruction is their reward uh, for the harm they have done. They love to indulge in evil pleasures in broad daylight. They are a disgrace and a stain upon you. They delight in deception, even as they eat with you in your, um, in your fellowship meals. They commit adultery with their eyes, and their desire, is, uh, their desire for sin is never satisfied. They lure unstable people into sin, and they are well-trained in greed. They live under God's curse. Wow. That's some of the harshest language in the New Testament. Reserved for false teaching. Jesus himself said in Matthew seven fifteen, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. False teachers are like dangerous wolves, Jesus says. And Jesus is warning us, many will come in his name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Or do, and, and Jesus warns us to not go after them. And, and we've seen this just in recent years. Jesus says false teachers are like wolves. But the Bible makes clear two things about Jesus' second coming. Uh, first, we will have no idea when it's going to come. And second, when the end does come, you will know. Did you catch that? We will have no idea when Jesus' second coming is coming, but when it does come, you will know. Luke seventeen twenty four says, For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. We will know. We will know. The horrors that surround the end times will be unmistakable. The return of Jesus will be seen by everyone. So don't follow these false teachers and false teachings. That's the first exhortation. The second exhortation is do not be frightened by the awesome events associated with the end times, but instead persevere and take a firm stand. Do not be frightened. Look at verse 9. And when you hear of wars and tumults, uh, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Verse 10, Then he said to them, Nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and uh, pestilence, and there will be uh, terrors and great signs from the heavens. And the signs um, probably means meteors or comets falling onto the earth of some sort. I know some of your translations put miraculous signs. Uh, that word miraculous is not in the Greek. It, it's probably signs of, of destruction of some sort. Right? And, th- and this is scary. Wars, earthquakes, famines, plagues, meteors. Right? This is horrific and scary. And yet Jesus commands us in verse 9, do not be terrified. And I really, again, like the New Living Translation, it just says, don't panic. Don't panic. But it gets worse. Look at verse 12. But before all um, this, there will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors 
for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to mediate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom, mouth and wisdom, which none of your um, adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you uh, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus' command again is don't panic. Don't panic when wars and earthquakes and famines and, and, and plagues and meteors and all this uh, end times uh, things start happening. He says, don't panic when persecution comes. Again, I want you to think of disciples at this point. They're probably shocked, confused, even scared. They thought Jesus was going to bring wealth and prestige and honor. And Jesus is probably, no, there's going to be harsh persecution coming your way. Yet Jesus is trying to comfort them. Again, in verse 9, he says, do not be terrified, don't panic. And he gives three reasons. Verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness Right? This persecution is going to be an opportunity for you to share my name. Verse 15, for I'll give you a mouth of wisdom, mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I will give you words to speak when you're dragged in front of everyone to answer. And verse 18, not a hair in your head will perish, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense when Jesus just promised a lot of you will get beat, thrown in prison, and die. Yet not a hair on your head will perish. I think we know what he's saying here. It's what Paul said um, in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ, to be a witness for him if I get beat, thrown in prison. But to die is to be with Christ. Therefore, you can't hurt me. Ultimately, I believe that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. And, and, and I think this is it. When persecution comes, I will be right there with you. When persecution comes, I'll be right there with you. And because I am there, you will endure. And because you will endure, verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. It actually reminds me of a, a story in Scripture, and that's the example of Stephen Turn with me to Acts 6. I just love this story so much. I go back to this all the time. It's one of the most amazing... This is one of the first people I'm going to look for when I get to heaven. Is Stephen. Just some context as you're turning there. Stephen is this godly man. In chapter 6, verse 5, you just look there. It says Stephen was, was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. It says Stephen was full of grace and power. Verse 10 said no one could withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Does that sound familiar? Luke 21, 15 promises us, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I believe Stephen is a fulfillment of this promise that that Jesus gave to his disciples. And I want to talk to you. If you're terrified of persecution, which I am, 
So I'm putting myself in there. We've just lived such a comfortable life as Americans. And, and I've seen people that have gone through persecution and some of the things they've gone through terrifies me. But if you're terrified of of persecutions, don't panic. Listen to this example of what happened. In in Acts 6, just like Jesus, Stephen, just like it was promised, was dragged in front of the authorities and put on trial, falsely accused. And Stephen, being a godly man, had to speak. And God gave him words. And being a godly man, he had to rebuke those false accusations because it was not only against him, it was against Christ. And he also was going to rebuke those accusers. And I think chapter 7 is one of the most amazing passages in Scripture where where this argument is like 50-something verses long of Stephen going through the history of Israel, showing that all the Bible points to Jesus and that he is Jesus' servant, Stephen, and doing his work. And I think one of the reasons it's so long is that Stephen knows when he turns and directs the rebuke at the leaders, he knows what's going to be coming his way. And through that whole entire time, he's thinking, am I going to do this? I know what's coming. I may be wrong on that, but, but that's my thought. He does. Right? He rebukes the leaders. In verse 54 of chapter 7, it says this, now, when they, the religious leaders, heard this thing, or these things, and when they, the religious leaders, that's who they are, when, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they gnashed their teeth at him. Right? Anger and rage filled them, gnashing of teeth, a hellish anger towards Stephen. And listen to the next part, verse 55. But he, being Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was courageous through persecution. He stood firm through persecution. I just... A definition of courage for the Christian is this. Courage is faith in a future reward by God that leads to obedience no matter what the cost is in this life. Let me just say that again. Courage is a future reward by God that leads to obedience no matter what the cost is in this life. And you may ask, well, where is the reward for Stephen? He got stoned. Well, he ended up, yes, getting stoned, and of course his reward is heaven. But think about this. Why is heaven so great? God's there. Okay, The glory of God is there, and the glory of God is our greatest joy. If that is true, when was Stephen's most joyful moment in all of his life? Look at verse 55. 
as he was getting stoned, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And I believe that's why in verse 56 he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand. I honestly think he's just forgotten that he's getting stoned and he's trying to get people to look. If heavy persecution ever happens to us, I believe God is going to be right there with us through it. And this is a testimony that I've heard from people that have gone through heavy persecution. In Southeast Asia, we met a man that was beat for two hours straight for his beliefs. And he said he didn't feel a thing. It was the weirdest thing. Stephen had grace and joy in this moment that overflowed as it was getting stoned. And it overflowed in love in a final prayer in Acts 7, 60. And, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. An interesting observation I like to remember. Remember what it said in, in, in Luke twenty one fourteen. It said, the people are going to drag you, and that's going to be an opportunity for you to be a witness of me. Why would God allow Stephen to get stoned? He was there, obviously, opened up the heavens for him and brought peace to them. He could have stopped it. Seems almost like a waste. What did it accomplish? Well, look at chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Here's the application of this. As we get talk about persecution and what it accomplishes, one man's faithfulness and extreme persecution had huge effects. God answers Stephen's prayer, Lord, do not hold these sins against them, at least in one man's life, and that's Saul. God brought salvation to Saul, changed his name to Paul, and used Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to write the majority of the New Testament, and to change the world. Listen, when persecution comes... Don't panic. For three reasons. It will be your opportunity to be be a witness. Verse 13. God will be right there with you, like Stephen, giving you a mouth of wisdom, which no one of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And even if they do beat you, and even if they do kill you, you will not be harmed. You will not be harmed. You will be spending eternity with the king. Turn back to Luke chapter 21, verse 30. A third exhortation is found in verse, uh, they say verse 30, verse 20. It's found in verse 20, chapter 21 of Luke. And that's flee from Jerusalem when it's besieged. This is the one I don't know if it applies to us or not. Verse 20 says this, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in uh, Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let those who are out in the country, um, uh, or who are out in the country enter it for though these are days of vengeance to fulfill what is written alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people 
This is an amazing prophecy because this is exactly what happened in AD 70. Rome surrounded Jerusalem, attacked and slaughtered thousands. And the amazing thing is, and this is a, a quote from the 4th century historian uh, Eusebius, uh, because he recorded this event, and he said this, the people of the church in this time in AD 70, the people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city, and I'm guessing it's the passage we're reading right now, to depart and dwell in the city of um, Pella. Those who believed on Christ migrated from Jerusalem. Meaning some listened to Jesus' command and got out of there and head for the hills. Left everything behind. And it seems like many Christians may have been saved because they listened to the prophecy in this gospel. So was this prophecy just about A.D. 70? Again, I think A.D. 70 was a type, or is a type of what is going to happen in the end times. And look at verse 24. It says this, they will, fa- they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be uh, uh, trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I think the events in AD 70 is a foreshadowing of what will happen in the end times. And from my understanding in eschatology, which I hold this very, very loosely, there will be some kind of surrounding of Jerusalem by armies in the future that will let us know that Jesus is coming very soon. So let's get to the fourth exhortation. Fourth exhortation is found in verse 25. It says this, when the final apocalyptic event, uh, or this is my, this is the exhortation, the point. When the final apocalyptic events do take place, take heart because your coming Redeemer is drawing near. Verse 25. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in uh, perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the power of the heavens will be shaken. At this point, I think Jesus is completely left AD 70 behind and he's focusing on the very end. And here's the point. It's going to get bad. One commentator said this, the word fainting appears only here in the New Testament. It literally means to breathe out or to stop breathing and hence to expire. In other words, people will literally be scared to death. They will be frightened to death because of what is happening around them. The radical alteration of the world and its environment at the end of the tribulation all will be the climax of all the terrifying events that happen. There will be no, I I think this is the end times, or I think we're getting close to the end times. There will be, this is the end times. People will know. And it gets worse, verse 27. And then, or well, it doesn't get worse, it gets better, depending on who you are. Verse 21, 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. This is the second coming of Jesus, and it will be witnessed by everyone. It will be unmistakable. Turn to Revelations 1-7 with me real quick. Revelations 1-7 says this, Behold, behold, he is coming with, with the clouds, and every eye will see him. 
This will be unmistakable. Everyone in the world will see him coming the second time, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen, will wail in terror. And this is because they're seeing the holiness of Jesus. And it'll be terrifying. One commentator said this, Jesus is, Jesus came the first time in a manger, right, as a baby. The first time in his humiliation, he will return in his exaltation. He came the first time to be killed. He will return to kill his enemies. He came the first time to serve. He will return to be served. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He will return as a conquering king. The challenge that the book of Revelation, and I would say the Olivet Discourse, makes to every person and every person in this room is to be ready for his return. Are you ready? Because those that aren't will wail on account of him. Skip to verse 12. They will turn to see the voice that was speaking to me and earth. Then I turned to see this, which is John talking. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven uh, lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with uh, a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, um, like white wool, like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze. Read, uh, refined in the furnace, and his voice like a roar, or the roar of many waters. In his right hand he had held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like that of the sun shining in full strength. That's a terrifying Jesus. And I know this is terrifying Jesus. We've gone over this passage before because John's reaction, a follower and beloved friend of Jesus. Look at verse 17. When I, John, saw him, I fell at my feet, at his feet as though dead. John was terrified. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Jesus had the authority, power, and right to destroy John but he gives mercy and grace. He laid his right hand on him saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. So here's my question. Are you ready? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Are you following him as Lord? Because it's very clear in scripture for those that don't have faith, the second coming will be a terrifying event and that terror will be appropriate. Because Jesus is coming to judge the world, and by that time it will be too late. But for those that have faith in Jesus, Jesus' return will be terrifying. But Jesus will reach out, lay his right hand on you, and say, fear not. And that will be the most glorious, joy-filled day of your life. And that's why Jesus says, turn back now to Luke twenty-one twenty-eight. Verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, right, these horrors of the end times, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your head, because your redemption is drawing near. So this means the fifth exhortation of Jesus. Be assured that throughout the apocalyptic period, the Lord's word 
words will endure. Look at verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they uh, come out in leaf, you see uh, for yourself and know that the summer is already near. So at last, or so also, when you see uh, these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There's a lot of uh, argument on what this generation means in this passage. Verse 32. Uh, Here's the problem. A generation usually in Jewish culture was 40 years, which fits perfectly in the destruction of the temple, which is exactly 40 years after Jesus taught this. Problem is, there's parts of this prophecy that haven't come true. Jesus' second coming. So here's my best guess. And if you disagree with me, I'd love to talk with you later. (laughs) Remember, this passage, I believe, is two fulfillments. A near fulfillment, the destruction of the temple in AD 40, and a a far fulfillment, the end times. I think Jesus, when he says, this generation is talking to two groups of people. The generation in the near fulfillment, those who will be around for the horrors of AD 70, a lot of those people he's talking to in this, this discourse and a future generation that will be around in the end times. When the signs of the end times comes, in other words, he is saying it will not be long. Not even a generation will pass away before it's all over. If that makes no sense to you, that's fine. Because that's not the point. The point is found in verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's the point. Listen, God's words will endure forever. By it, he created everything. Through it, he upholds the universe in Hebrews 1. And without it, we are hopeless. Therefore, we should read his word, study his word, listen to his word, and do it over and over and over again. Because the heavens and the earth will pass away, but God's word will last forever. This leads to my sixth and last exhortation. Be ready, be watchful, and pray so that you can stand before the Son of Man. Verse 34 says this, But watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with uh, uh, dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day um, come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Which leads me to the question that I've been asking throughout. Are you ready? Are you ready? When Jesus told the disciples about the destruction of the temple, they said that won't happen in their hearts. Look at this beautiful building. 40 years later, it did. Listen, don't make the same mistake. Put your faith in Jesus. Follow him. He's coming back. Don't put too much value in this life. Just like the temple, it's all coming down. But for those that have faith in Jesus, for those that are ready for for his return, they're going to enter into a much better life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you get us ready as a church, as individuals, 
that we are excited for that day to see you yet with great reverence because we know who you are, Lord. Help us where we need to work, Lord, to get ready for that day. I thank you for this time. Be with us, Lord. Amen.